listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. As, as this practice seeps in more and more deeply, you realize that it seeps out just as fast. You can't, and it's not something that needs to be controlled, needs to be wanted, needs to, it just, there's this beautiful flow that you can't contain. There's no other choice. Typically the reason why, or the reasons why we get into any type of deep spiritual work is because it hurts. Something isn't right. We feel lost. We feel, well, maybe this will offer something up. I like my husband, so I may as well show up, you know. I want to know more. I'm curious. The little seven-year-old with the chocolate addiction, how's he doing now? You know, whatever it happens to be, whatever happens to be, there is this way that the universe tells us it wants to evolve through us. It tells us that there's stuff to learn, that there's teaching that we can absorb. Learning is difficult. The teaching is always there all the time, but the real big choice is, well, can I allow this in? Can I allow this in unconditionally? At some point in our practice, allowing this stuff in unconditionally begins to take us into an entirely new realm, to use a real Western way of saying this, it takes our practice to the next level when we really just let it in and we don't try to take it a certain way, kind of like what I was talking about earlier. I like, I like it when he does this, where he speaks, I like, it, I like it when he speaks with his hands, but not when he reads from his silly book that's going to be published someday, you know an example. Or, when the Dharma makes me feel good, I like it. This is the real trap. When the Dharma makes me feel good and peaceful, uh, yeah. But when it actually exposes things in me that I really have spent a number of years sweeping under the rug, I'm not so happy with the Dharma. All understandable. It's all understandable. But the goal of an authentic Dharma practice is to remove the rug entirely. It's to actually expose that which we have been burying in the supportive community that we build. And it's one of the reasons why I think Sangha is so important in a spiritual practice. Why the group, in other words, is so important in a spiritual practice. We tend to think that we can do this in our condo alone. Or that we can just, you know, 
you know you have a you have a quiet space in the corner of your your studio or a whole room dedicated to it in your estate doesn't matter we can do it alone we cannot we can meditate alone we can do the physical work of an authentic spiritual practice but it takes a sangha it takes a group of people a community of spiritual friends that you might not go to the saloon with or you might not go dining with them or you might not you know watch a niner game with them but you connect on a deeper level you connect on a deeper level Every one of us is here to support the other person, regardless of their past, regardless of what they're going to do next week, regardless how long they'll be with us. We're here for each other. And the minute you can do it in a spiritual circle, and you can do it rather consistently, you can let others in, even to the point where they annoy and you can then suddenly feel your resistance and in feeling your resistance you go oh yeah that's the skin of my ego and in really exploring the skin of your ego you can feel that kind of start to melt away and drop away and suddenly you see yourself and the other person and everybody else when the community turns up the heat that much on your practice what is that with the implications of that are so amazingly beautiful it means take it from here and now go out there wherever that is Go into your office. Know that they may not connect with you in the same way that the, you know a group of spiritual friends connects with you, but that at their core, they are none other than you. The difference between those people over there and those of us in here is just organization and energy. That's it. That's it. Everybody's trying to get their needs met problems arise when we believe that there is an us in here and a them out there. Breaking down that barrier, breaking down that collective skin of ego allows us to move freely in the world. It allows us to kiss everyone with our glances. It allows for us to let their love in and ours out. It allows for us when we feel ourselves getting tense it allows for us to really recognize, you know what? The person that's giving me this resistance, I'm sharing the life and death experience with them. It allows for a sharing. It allows for a give and take, an openness. A fearlessness will naturally arise from that place in addition to compassion. I'll say that again in a different way. When we are in that space, when the pressure cooker of Sangha, when the pressure cooker of Sangha creates a sense in you, you start to practice dealing with people at a hyper-honest level, at a radically honest level. When you call them on their stuff with tenderness, maybe it's absolutely silent. You don't, you just, but you, you are upright. You face your life while you're with your group of spiritual friends. Okay? you can carry it out. The boundaries begin to dissolve and when those boundaries dissolve, the natural expression of any of us, when the skin of ego starts to, starts to fall away, is fearlessness and compassion. 
if I were going to put this in real cool Buddhist jargon, I would say that once the wisdom of Sangha begins, begins to unfold in us, the compassion of meeting the world expresses itself. So what I wanted to do in introducing ourselves and stating our, you know, stating why it is that we are actually here, the reason I did that, among other things, because I was kind of curious. Also, I wanted all of us to hear everyone else's stories. I wanted everyone to hear the little scripts that egos wrote. And I wanted you to hear them as your own. They're not that far off from your own. We all write the same. We have different handwriting, but the scripts are often just absolutely the same. Can you let go of that? Can we let go of each other? Can we let go of the group? Can we let go of the Sangha? It will be maintained in a very, very healthy way the more it is, it is surrendered and allowed to grow just like a flower. It may be something you feel really connected to or kind of connected to or actually kind of alienated from. All of those are totally valid. Look at your experience, not only within this group, but compare it to any other relationship you have. It's all you have. All you have is relationship. There is nothing non-relational about your life. You are related to matter. You are related to body. You are related to mind. You are related to soul. You are related to spirit. And every one of those manifestations, you're related to all of it. Other people, ideas, avoidances, greed, all, all of that stuff, you're related to it. How do you do it? How do you meet it? Let go. Let go. Let go of those relationships and observe them. Let go of the relationships you have with everybody in this room and observe them. What do you crave? Watch that craving. The health of the group will always be better if you can be really clear about your own craving, about your own habits, about your avoidances, about your greed. You get the idea. Be aware and bring that awareness in every single time, even if it's just once a month, whatever. Whatever it is, maybe it's more. Can you bring that awareness in? If that awareness becomes your center of gravity, what shows up in that awareness becomes superfluous. You don't care what I say. You know, you don't care how I say it. It doesn't bother you that the person next to you keeps sniffling. You start to develop a sense of peace, a sense of readiness to play, a sense of readiness to play. So we spend a lot of time talking about the, uh, the three treasures of the three jewels. We call them the you know, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. 
And Sangha is one that I think I spend far too little time on. But I wanted to just express it to you guys how thankful I am that you have the courage to show up. This takes tremendous courage. To, uh, especially, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's got to be so much easier when it's like some type of codified, regulated, like building that says, this is a Buddhist building where you will sit still and we'll teach you how to do it, as opposed to something like this, which is, come on down to the yoga shala, and there's this guy, uh, yeah, you know, and that takes some real courage. Back to my point about the three jewels. The Buddha, I tend not to use that too often, the word too often, because it's, I think, very loaded, but let's, let's play with it a little bit. The Buddha is our highest self. The Buddha is that in us which is awake. The Buddha is non-gender specific. A Buddha is a Buddha. A Buddha is an awakened being. It's our awakened self. It's our witness. It's our direct connection with God. That's Buddha. Dharma we can translate from Sanskrit into truth. I like teaching. The teaching will give you precisely nothing. The truth will give you nothing. You have to go get it. What's the expense? What's the cost? What's the price of admission? That very you. The you that wants it suddenly recognizes, oh my God, I am it. There was nothing to go after. That teaching, that truth, begins to then develop that whole sense of fearlessness and compassion. And if this is a little bit too abstract, if I've lost you, don't worry. We'll, we'll play with it some more over the weeks ahead. Lastly is the Sangha, which is our group. I sometimes like to refer to it as relationship. We're in relationship, always. Yeah, but my boyfriend and I broke up. That's okay. It's okay, you're still in relationship to all sorts of other people, okay? And most likely, a new boyfriend's going to come along, or a new girlfriend's going to come along, a new spouse is going to come along. You know, that stuff will all be there if you're available. And so in Sangha, we practice an availability. An availability to each other. Not to take care of each other and keep the person small, but to take care of of each other by letting every one of us be big, be aware, by helping each other be aware. Sure. How, how, how does that happen? Is it just that we are breaking down, or is it more of a, or is breaking down more of a negative, and we are opening? So you want me to talk more about the? I, I use the uh, the um, the metaphor of the ego skin. Yeah. 
right. beginning to get uh, uh, to use abrasion or something like that. I mean, when it gets so it rubs against rough. it gets rubbed raw by these incessant invitations that are thrown at it by the universe. The universe is constantly just saying, take off that skin. I want to see myself. The universe, the infinite God, wants to see herself through us. She does not want to have dinner alone. Okay? And so, and that, that work, uh, we as, as beings can become kind of in tune with it. And I guess the evidence for that would be the fact that there is around the globe, independent of each other, communities have recognized something beyond this body. That death, suddenly the lack of animation in a, in a body, it's like, well, where the hell did it go? And then that sparks kind of this, this you know, series of, of decisions and choices and, and thoughts. And that's going to happen to me, right? And, and death or the finitude creates this, this big burst of uh-oh in us. We have this mechanism inside whose job it is to feel the uh-oh. And that's ego. That's the small self. The separate, that in us which feels separate from everything else. And so what it does is it spends a lifetime orchestrating and creating a series of stories that it can use as bricks and mortar to keep it bunkered down, right? To keep it protected from the onslaught of these invitations. And so that bunker, the surface of that bunker or the skin of the ego, they're, they're interchangeable there. It gets slammed constantly, constantly. Anytime you have a challenge, anytime you feel resistance, there it is. That's it. That is it right there, that miracle. We normally don't look at it like that. You know, the dog just peed in my friend's house. I'm not looking at that as an invitation to, like, uh, awaken, but, boy, it's there. You know, how do you do... I can't believe I'm telling you this story, but it's like, like my dog never makes errors. She's like the most precious, precious little thing. It, you know, my attachment, isn't it? My dog is just perfect, right? And my dog, suddenly we take him over to our friend's house. And, and I mean, she always goes over there and she plays with these little Yorkshire Terriers and they always hear, and she's like, woof, you know, and then and, and has fun with them and runs around in the backyard with them. And. She comes walking into the house. We're enjoying this beautiful dinner that the hostess put out. And she just squats and pees on the floor. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? You know? But it was, it, it, you know, as I looked at it afterwards, and my wife, of course, gave me endless grief about this. You know, it's, Where's your awakening now? You know? <laughs> this, this dog basically said, welcome. Welcome. You cannot control everything. What's your reaction? How are you going to meet this jackass? You know. And and it was it was hilarious. I mean, it was hilarious because I went through all these kind of like, uh, no, not on Pat's floor. You know. I mean, because and to give you a little bit of background, Pat has maybe one of the most beautiful houses I've ever seen. I mean, just this multi-million-dollar spread on this gorgeous hillside in Arinda. They've got these grapes. They're growing, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where you kind of go, that's not the house to do it. 
yet more attachment, isn't it? <laughs> All of this stuff just started to unfold. My dog gave me life in that moment. She gave me everything that I needed for that practice. She showed me the skin of my ego like no one else could have done in that moment. Right? Where is that resistance? Resistance is the scrape. That's the feeling of the scrape of the universe saying, hello, and waiting for its echo. Or something like that. That just sounded a little too poetic or something. I just wanted to soften it a little. You know, am I going anywhere that you, you look lost? I'm still, yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out. My ego is still trying to put it all you know, together into, into a box. Right. And so you and so you want me to give you the prescription for awakening right now? <laughs> you ready? Yes. Okay. The stillness is going to show you that that box does not, cannot, will not exist. Okay. And the ego's work is to say, uh -uh, it can so watch me. Watch me. And since it can't do it, it's constantly meeting up with really, really depressing reality bites that are thrown at it all the time. You cannot win this one. You can't win this one. So now when you're saying you, is it? Ego. You're telling my ego, the ego. you can't win that. Right, right. So that's my higher, my, my bigger, your bigger server self your is With absolute love. It's saying that. But you can't win, so just relax. Yeah, and it can say that exact same thing by saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. The image you can always have is ego saying, I don't want your love. I want your cooperation. You know, I want you to be able to do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it, right? Let your bigger, biggest sense of being continually express its love for all of this by just watching it. It's still. That stillness is a physicalized, mental, heartfelt manifestation of God in that moment. And then you got to do it again and again and again. Yeah. Now let it go. Now you let it go. <laughs> Good. Did Pat awaken? I'm sorry? Did Pat awaken? Mm -hmm. <laughs> did, did, did Pat awaken? No, no, no the, Pat, you went that to, was how she went to. Oh, Pat? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, the, 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 the lady whose house I went to, she was the teacher because she started to crack up. You know? I mean, talk about shining the light of just this open, beautiful consciousness on Zen Boy. You know? <laughs> I mean, she's just like, she, she's like watching my dog defiantly squat and pee on this floor. And she goes, oh, <laughs> you know, and she's in the middle of this very complex, like, meal. She's coordinating this meal for these people. And we were all dressed nice and everything. It was just, oh, God. And, and to, to watch her do that, to watch her be in that space of just open kind of, man, isn't that a crack up? My lesson. And it was so beautiful. It was so be such a great reminder. We can take ourselves so damn seriously, you know? And especially when you sit on my seat. <laughs> you sit here, 
You start thinking you have something to give people, which is total BS. I have nothing to give you, uh, which is true, really. Uh, all I have to give you is, I, I just point you in the direction of stillness, of space. That's it. If my style works for you, great, let's hang out, you know? <laughs> but there's nothing, there's nothing for me to give. But in this, in this seat, there is, if I'm not careful, and if other teachers aren't careful, there, there can come this point of, well, I clearly get it. Wrong. The dog got it, and Pat got it. <laughs> bows to both of them. Nine bows to my doggy and my friend Pat. <laughs> we call people like that, of course, bodhisattvas. You know, awakened beings that are teaching us something. Now, I'm not going to presuppose that my dog is in any way awake. Sometimes she is. Sometimes she's very much in an egoic space that nobody wants to be around, really, when she chases, like, shadows and laser beams and stuff like that. It's about getting, right? About attack. But then there are other moments when it's just, you know, like when you come home, and, the, and she does this little wiggly thing, like, she, there is nothing that could possibly make her happier. What would it be like to live like that? Not where you wiggle like that all the time, but, but you know, where you're in that space of just, I am so happy, you know? Anyone else? Yes, ma'am? But then not to be attached to that happiness? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, actually, what's really beautiful, it's, it's such a great question. I'm so glad you asked it because happiness will ebb and flow like any other state we're in. Right? Happiness is born and then it dies. Depression, born and then it dies. Although it seems like it carries on for a long, long time. Okay? Maybe our happiness even, like we've had this, like the, sometimes we can refer to it as like our happiness bar has been like raised, you know, it's been jacked up and it's stayed really high for a long time. And then all of a sudden, you know, every state that we have is temporary, like all things. All things are temporary. All things are interdependent. And all things at their core are infinite. All things at their core are infinite in their essential nature. This teaching points us towards that infinite core of all things, because that doesn't change. Put another way, our happiness will ebb and flow. Our consciousness will only go in one direction if we nurture it appropriately. It will increase the more stillness we incorporate into our being, okay? The more conscious you become, the less important that depression is, the less important it is to be happy. <laughs> yes? Um, I have a more practical question mm -hmm. sort of around the, the talk of the Sangha. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that everybody here gets meditation time at home three times a day, <laughs> one like in the morning without the kids, and then around lunchtime, and then evening, and it's, it's perfect. And they never come here to get their stillness, just exclusively in a week. 
But what should be what should we be looking for in the private practice versus yes. the sangha practice? Because you said yes, you can do part of this work at home alone mm -hmm. and meditate and deepen it, but there's a component that only the group can give you. Right. And what are the specifics? Well, my my recommendation is, and then different different teachers go in different directions here, but uh, the more stillness you can purposefully, consciously incorporate into your daily life, the faster this teaching will rip apart the skin of the ego. Okay? The faster this, the shortcut, and this is the real bummer to Westerners, the shortcut to awakening is to sit still. That's the shortcut. There are a couple things you can do to help help that out. Number one, I I think it's it's imperative that you find time every day. Every day. If it's five minutes, fine. You're wimping out if you're doing that. But if it's five minutes, fine. And I want I want to make sure that I, that everybody, most of you know this about me. I'm, I, I feel very passionate about this because I see it work. And so from sitting on, in this cushion, it's like I can, I can help you if you do this. And everybody will dance around the this. Well, but what if I do? What if I do? Okay. <laughs> do the stillness every day. And push. Lean into it a little bit. Okay. Don't attach to it. Vow it. Right? You vow in a marriage right you vow and that vow is not to attach to your partner it's you vow to make that connection and hopefully it'll work same thing with a practice vow to make a practice work as best you can and if you have trouble guess what you have monday night and then that's what the, that's where the teach the teacher can come in i know for me it was it was so incredibly important because i would be sitting in my apartment and, you know, all this great stuff would, would happen or miserable stuff would happen. And then I would check in with him. And in that checking in, it was like he was able to tailor the Dharma to my Buddha. Right? The Sangha helped tailor the Dharma to my Buddha. All three of those jewels were then supported in, in, in those moments. And so every day, and if you really need to, if your ego really wants this, take one day off. Okay, if you can get as close to 30 minutes as possible, great. If this is your only time that you ever get a stillness practice, that's okay too. But I just don't know that once a week, you know, where it's a mediocre meditation and then you get to hear me talk. I don't know. That, I don't know. I can't imagine that that would be as powerful as really taking on a vow and, and, and meeting the resistance to that vow as this, that is the universe dying to break through. Whenever you have that thing, like if you decide to do it in the morning and the alarm goes off and you, you can hear, you can feel, you can sense, you can meet with ego the moment you hear 15 more minutes. <laughs> right? That's it right there. We're going to die. Every one of us is going to die. We don't know how, when. We don't know the manner. We don't know when. 
So how are we going to live? And that life then, I believe, gets just enriched so fully with a stillness practice that's daily, as best you can. And guess what? If you fall off the wagon, you know, you go for two, three weeks, and, you, you know, you can, the worst thing you can do is punish yourself. Get back on. Just get back on the cushion. You fall off the fall off the cushion uh, uh, twice in one week, and it's like I'm not built for this this Buddhist crap, you know. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Let's observe that. Now get your ass back on the cushion. Shut up. <laughs> you know, who's in charge? Big self. Big self is ready, always ready to say hi. An ego will do whatever it can to manage the entire experience, and it won't be able to. So let big self, let him in. Let her do what she's designed to do, which is expand, evolve, just like the universe itself. It's expanding. Is that, is that about the longest way I can answer your question? <laughs> Sit every day? <laughs> Although, if any of you are sitting three times a day, like, like a good Buddhist, I want you guys to double your practice. Okay? See you next week. <laughs>